Hi guys, Paul from the Innovation Community here. Today, I'm once again with John Thompson, who is the Global Head of Advanced Analytics and Artificial Intelligence at CSL Bering. Uh, this is John's second appearance on the, the podcast. When we first had him, he brought out his uh, first book on analytics, How to Win with Intelligence. And recently, he's brought out uh, Building Analytics Teams, which has been a, a huge success. Great to have you with us again, John. Nice to be here, Paul. Thanks for the invitation. So just for those who, who've been living in a cave for the last five years or so. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I hope it's been a comfortable cave if they've been in there. Um, hello, everybody. Great day here in Chicago. It, it's, uh, you know, sunny and 70 degrees on November. So we usually don't have these kind of days. It's usually windy and cold and snowy. So happy to be here. And uh, I've been focused on advanced analytics for 37 years. Uh, I have been working on it uh, for a long time and have really been passionate about it. So I started out as a developer and, and started building systems and then became a consultant and flew around the world and built systems for large companies like Coke Cadbury Schweppes, TSB, um, Lloyd's, uh, in the United States, uh, Coors, uh, Pillsbury, you name it. There's, you know, there's very few companies I haven't touched over the 37 years that I've been involved. So I've gone from being someone who's innovated those technologies and built them and, and implemented them as a consultant to being a, a head of advanced analytics like I am now for a biopharmaceutical company. So I've been on both sides of the equation, building the technology, using the technology. Uh, and over those years, I've learned a few things. So I, I thought it would be smart and helpful to write those things down in a couple of books. Fantastic. So how, how have you seen the data world change since your career started? <laughs> well, I think we started out with abacuses, so uh, it's been quite a bit of change. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, when, when I started, I was a programmer building, you know, systems for large corporations. And when I started talking about data, people looked at me like I really didn't know what I was talking about. I bumped into my, my boss, my old, bo my old boss at IBM a, a couple of years ago. And I think I worked there like five, seven, eight, nine years ago. And he said to me, he said, you know, when you were just banging on about data and analytics, I just thought you were crazy. So even as, you know, even just a few years ago, people really didn't think that it was going to be a big deal with data and analytics. But for some reason, I always thought it was going to be. So <clears throat> what has happened is that we used to look, data as just, look at data as just an artifact, something that we had to have, um, nothing that we were going to leverage or use to drive our business forward. So very few people, you know, back when I started even cared about data, you know, they, they would put in all sorts of fields that were all zeros or they didn't have enough, you know, edit functionality to make sure that the data had any quality whatsoever. So uh, there's not, there's not an aspect of our operations that has not changed in, in the, the span of my professional career. Fantastic. So what are you up to in your current role? We're building all sorts of really cool advanced analytics. You know, we, we just built a forecasting application. Um, we talked a little bit about CSL Bearing. It's a, the third largest biopharmaceutical company in the world. All our therapies are derived from human plasma. So we have a plasma donation network across the United States, over 270 centers across the United States. 
And we built a forecasting application that's based on a neural net that uh, we released it about six months, about eight months ago. And we forecasted all the centers at the daily level for six months. Now we've, we've fixed it, or not fixed it, we've extended it. And it, it forecasts all the centers at the hourly level for the next two years. So we're doing forecasting, which is a fun kind of thing to do and really helpful for the, uh, the business. And we're also working on all sorts of analytics to understand the donor behavior. And then we're working on the other side too to help understand patients as well. And the fact that you've been, been working in this space for, for many years and you've written a couple books on it, what really interests you about working with data and analytics? It's a, it's a great career for someone who is really curious. I, I've just, I'm always curious about everything. I, you know, I sometimes feel like I'm still that seven-year-old kid. Why, why, why? Why does it do this? Why does it do that? And why do apples fall down? And why is the sky blue? I mean, I just ask questions all the time. I'm just intrigued about everything. So it's one of the few careers my wife asked me the other, I guess about a month ago. She said, how many, how many industries have you worked in? And I said, well, I don't know. I never really thought about it. She said, why don't you sit down and write it down? And I was like, okay. So I sat down and wrote it out and it was 20 industries. So I've worked in consumer packaged goods and industry, you know, energy and automotive and financial services and it goes on and on and on. And I've, I've helped deploy 60 uh, production level advanced analytic applications over the, you know, the 37 years and 20 industries. So what I love about it is it in the morning, you know, when I, when I was on the vendor side, uh, I could be talking to someone about the optimal flow of, uh, you know, the optimal shape of a flame in a coal-fired, uh, you know, electricity plant. And in the afternoon, I'm just talking to someone about credit risk and, and what is the optimal way to decide who's the best risk to give someone a loan to. So, you know, for someone like me who's just curious about everything and wants to work on everything they can get their hands on, Data and analytics is one of the few places you can uh, have that kind of that kind of focus. Absolutely, and you had such a passion for it that it led you to write the first book, Analytics: How to Win with Intelligence. What really, uh, you know, made you spend five hours a day writing a book? <laughs> well, it was <clears throat> I was working at Dell, and I'd been flying around the world, literally flying around the world for three years meeting with C-level executives, non-technical C-level executives, that is, CEOs, COOs, CFOs. And, and whenever I started talking about data and analytics, they would tense up. You could tell that they were apprehensive about the topic. They didn't really understand it. And they didn't know what they needed to know. So when McKinsey came in or Bain or, you know, any of the other consultancies came in, they, they were the, C, the executives were being talked to in a language that they were uncertain about. So you have executives that came up through sales or marketing, through manufacturing or supply chain. <clears throat> None of them were really that well-versed in data and analytics. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to write a book. It's a short book. It's, it's just under 200 pages uh, so that you could actually pick it up and read it in a day or on a, a short airline flight and understand, you know, who do you need to hire? How much do they cost? What can they actually do? What can you expect from them? What can't they do? Uh, you know, what should you outsource to service providers and what should you keep inside because it's it's a competitive proprietary advantage. So I, I just saw a need in the marketplace and I have the experience and the understanding and the knowledge. So I thought I'll write a book, which before that 
I never planned to write a book ever. Uh, it was just not something that I had ever considered doing. And you know, that was that was a huge success in the analytics community. I, rem- I remember back when it first came out. Why did you write a book about analytics teams as a follow-up to that first one? Great question. Uh, you know, I was I was noticing that you know when you read much of the popular press, Forbes and McKinsey's research, and other different people that are Tom Tom Davenport and you know uh, Bernard Marr. You know, the people that are out there being thought leaders around the analytics field, you read a lot about the fact that artificial intelligence and analytics and machine learning were not living up to the hype. They were not living up to the representations. And, and I thought, I'm, you know, I'm not seeing that. You know, in the projects that I'm involved in, we are having success. We are making a difference in the business. We are driving change. Why is this happening? So I started looking at other teams and talking to people. And what I found out was that you know, what we were doing is that we were treating things differently. We were doing things differently. So I reflected on that and I thought, okay, I wrote a book for the executives so they could understand what they need to invest in. Now I need to write a book for the people who need to build those analytics teams because they're different. So I thought, or write a book, you know, both of the books are how-to books, you know, how to invest and start a function and then how to actually build a team that's going to drive the function. So I thought, you know, I've got that knowledge. I understand. I've been successful at it. So let's see if I can write a book that could be helpful. And that was really written for, as you said, executives and, and managers who are building teams, the, the, the sequel to, to the first one, if you will. What other audiences are really buying and, and talking about the book? You know, Paul, I've been humbled and, and really humbled and pleasantly surprised by the reception of the book. This this book has taken off. I mean, I, the first book was successful, and I was very happy with it. This book has just just skyrocketed. It's 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 in the top one percent of all book sales on Amazon, and it remains there. It has been there since the second week, and has never never varied, never wavered. So the book was, as you said, the book was written for people who are building analytics teams. So that would be. Uh, a director or a vice president or somebody like that who's building an analytics team in an enterprise organization, a large corporation like Procter and Gamble or Nestle or you know one of those kind of comp- companies. Uh, but what I'm finding is that the book is being adopted and embraced by a wider audience. So a lot of students who are undergraduate and graduate level students who have never been in the workforce or have gone in the workforce for a couple of years and have come back to school, um, have decided that they want to be data scientists and they've never been part of a data science team before. So they're picking up the book and reading it so they can be the best data scientists they possibly can be. And they can understand what their managers and the executives who manage those managers will expect of the team. So there's a lot of talk about what does it take to be a good data scientist and and what does the good data science team look like? There's a fair number of people that have reached out to me through LinkedIn and, you know, messaging and different apps and things like that. Um, Text message and different, different venues and and have said, will you talk to me about what is going on with my advanced analytics team? So it's, it's almost become like a, a cottage industry where I, I'm the data science whisperer, I guess, you know, people come and say, you know, hey, we're having trouble with this. We're having trouble with that. And, and I said, well, yeah, okay, I've done that. I've made that mistake. I know how that works. Uh, so it's really been accepted by a pretty broad community of data and analytics professionals, which is quite, quite pleasing. 
And it's interesting that you bring up LinkedIn as well, because uh, I've been following you for a number of years now, and you don't just talk about data science. I think one of my favorite ones was the analytics behind growing your own network, which was super interesting. I've also heard you talk about the, the personal project portfolio as a tool for, for managing a data science team. Can you talk about your, your views on that? Yeah, absolutely. It was just something that I stumbled upon, like many good ideas. It wasn't anything that I really thought about too much. You know, I just noticed that you know, the advanced analytics teams and data scientists in particular, you know, I like to say they have Ferrari brains, you know, they're just running at such high revs and, and going so fast that if you give them one project and you just say, work on this, you know, you run into snags, you know, you, you, in our projects, we always have a subject matter expert involved. Well, sometimes subject matter experts quit or they go on maternity leave or they get sick or, you know, things like that. So sometimes you have a delay in the project other times you can't get a hold of the data or you can't buy the external data that you want. You know, there's just things there, fits and starts and projects. And if you have just one project that you're relying on, these people become, you know, kind of agitated to tell you the truth, you know, because they want to be working on things. So what I decided is I'll, I'll develop something that I end up calling the personal portfolio, personal project portfolio. And it's where the data scientists, they all have two major projects. And a major project is defined as something that takes six to six months to a year or two to finish. So that's a big project. Then they'll have a handful, maybe three or four small projects that'll take, you know, a couple days to a week or two, maybe a month to finish. And then, as we all know, working in, in organizations, daily questions come in, especially around board meetings. You know, we get questions from all sorts of executives. You know, they're getting ready for the board meeting. They want to know you know, how is our, our acquisition rate of our, our donors and what's this look like and what's that look like? So we do all those analytics for them too. So the data scientists are, they're autonomous, they're self-managed. You know, I, I say that we have an artisanal team as opposed to a modular team and they write the, the charters for the projects. They collaborate with their subject matter experts. They obtain the data, integrate data, clean data, do feature engineering, do modeling, work with the IT team to get models into production. So, you know, that, that personal project portfolio allows them to cycle through work. You know, when you hit a, a, a snag on a project, and maybe it's not your subject matter expert, maybe it's not the data problem, maybe you've just tried something that does not work. And, and I tell my data scientists all the time, try things. If it doesn't work, that's why you have lots of other projects to work on. You know, sometimes, you know, you have one of those little minor freak out moments, you know, hey, I was going to try to do this, but ah, it doesn't work. I can't predict what I want to predict. Okay, well, go work on something else, you know, take some time, take a day or two, relax, think about it. Uh, you know, it'll come to you. And then usually it does. It comes in a day or two and then they come back and go, I've come up with a new way to do it. It's like, great. You know, so you just don't want someone banging on you know, against something that is going to be frustrating, upsetting, and raising their cortisol levels. I'm a big believer that everybody should be relaxed. Everybody should be calm. Everybody should be having fun at work. We shouldn't be feeling like our heads in a vice. And I, and I feel like that, that approach to work-life balance and work management works pretty well for a, a creative-oriented advanced analytics team. And, and just touching on the the creative side of things in the past you've also talked about data science team being creative it's a team of creators rather than a team of random people with 
te- technical skills. Can you talk about how you characterize that? Yeah, I, I really do believe that uh, advanced analytics teams are a very creative, a very creative group, you know, because they get these big projects and they, they iterate, you know, they cycle through, they try things, they try to figure out, you know, why do people do what they do? Why do, you know, why do people, you know, go here and go there and do this and buy that and don't buy this and pay the pay crazy money for that. And, you know, it's just one of those things that when you're trying to understand why humans are doing what they're doing, it's complicated. Uh, and it, and it's, you know, just one of those things that's, it's just kind of fun to do. Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned you've been working in a, a number of industries in the past. What do you think was the biggest impact you made on a transformation? I have to say that we did a, um, we did a project for a Northern European bank on credit risk. And every, every bank, every financial institution in the world has a, a threshold at which they say, we won't make any loans past this mark because the, the, the default risk and, and all these different things are just too much on this side. The market's too dangerous over here, too risky. So what we decided was that, okay, we thought we could take that threshold and we could move it about five points deeper into the market. And because we came up with some really interesting models and we refreshed them really fast, that bank was able to take about 5% more market share without increasing their default risk or their actual default loan rate. So we transformed their ability to be profitable, to create new products, to you know, be a market leader because we were able to give them basically 5% of uncontested market share. I think that was pretty impactful for them. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, you're someone who clearly has a passion for people. How would you describe your own leadership style? You know, it's really interesting because when I was leaving college, I think I would probably have been voted the most likely to never manage another person uh, ever. So it's, it's been a journey, that's for sure. And uh, I do enjoy teams and I do enjoy managing teams. And it's, it's been something that has been a, a journey for me and I've really loved being on it. Um, my management style, I, I can tell you what I think it is, probably best to ask the people who work for me. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty uh, hands-off kind of guy. Uh, you know, I expect people to do their work every day. I expect them to work hard. I expect them to be conscientious and, and ethical and honest and, and driven in what they do. Uh, but I give them a lot of leeway to get there. Um, you know, we, we, I have some big ideas. I have some really hard ideas that I want people to work on. I expect them to, you know, be clear-eyed and, and realistic about those. Sometimes people come back and say, I just, that just can't be done. And, and sometimes that's the case. But most of the time I allow them to write their project charters. Of course, I read and, and review and, and give input on all of them. And then I expect them to work with their subject matter experts, IT counterparts, their executives that they, they work with and, and do their job on a regular basis. I provide all the air cover you would expect if the corporation is not uh, allowing them to have the resources or if people are getting in their way or if they need additional funding they didn't think about, I go and get all those resources for them. I secure them and provide them to them. But on a day-to-day basis, I would say that my teams are, you know, they feel pretty comfortable that I have their back and they can do what they need to do to get their work done. 
makes a lot of sense. And I, I guess less of an issue in the current role, but in previous roles, how have you found the best ways to engage and communicate team members with analytics? Uh, the data science team members or uh, organization? Exactly. Uh, the wider organization. Oh, the wider organization. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, it's always a curiosity. How do you communicate within your team? And then how do you communicate to the, the broader corporate team? Um, the broader corporate team, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we as analytical professionals need to be aware that we speak a very arcane language in some respects. We're different, as I say in the book, we're different, but in a good way. Um, but, you know, when we talk amongst ourselves, we can, we can talk algorithms and math and all kinds of stuff. But when we talk to other people, we need to talk their language. And, and that's been one of my core skills throughout my career. I started out as a project man or a product manager. So I was always talking to end users and then talking to developers and then talking to executives and talking to marketing people and talking to, you know, I was always talking to different groups and then translating my language to meet their language. So what I always say to my data science team is that, you know, you need to practice their language. So if you're talking to a, a C-level executive, a senior vice president, executive vice president, you should really be talking in their function. If they're a supply chain person or marketing or sales or manufacturing, you should be talking about that area they care about. And you should be talking in the language and the vernacular they are interested in, whether it's profit and loss or efficiency or whatever it happens to be. So we work really hard to be, I only speak English, so, you know, that's, that's all I can speak. I can't speak Urdu or Tamil or French or German or anything like that. But we need to be conversant in the various languages within the English language of how people understand what we're talking about. You know, that's, we need to be translators, I think is what McKinsey calls us. So we have to see the value in advanced analytics and the data and understand how to do it but communicate, you know, in a language that people understand. Absolutely. And, and I think uh, another big aspect would be, where do you see the biggest opportunity for improvement in the data space at the moment? I think there's some really interesting movement going on in, in understanding um, the, the synergy and value of internal and external data. You know, the, the whole big data movement has been great. You know, there's been some, some you know deficiencies in that conversation for sure but i do think people are coming around to the um to understanding of the value of what i call ensembles of data so you know it's rare for us to do an advanced analytic project where we're looking at one piece of data you know we we built an application where we predict where we should put the next donation centers and that has it has all sorts of data sources underneath it. It has probably 10 different data sources. Half of them are internal, half of them are external. And we run all sorts of models underneath that as well. So you have multiple data sources, you have multiple models, but when the users sit down and look at it, all they see is a map. So, you know, they type in, they're interested in Dallas, they type in the word Dallas and it takes them right there and it shows them all the metrics that are relevant for that. So I do believe people are starting, at least advanced analytics people, are starting to understand the value of having many integrated data sets to understand the phenomena that's in the real world and, and human behavior. I think that's probably the biggest move I see right now. 
um, if you'll indulge me, I do see some other things going on in the data world. Uh, you know, you're, you're in the UK and, you know, we have our friends in the EU, which of course you're not part of anymore. We understand that. Um, but, you know, they've, they've done a presentation to the EU governing body in February that the, the EU is going to build a data commons. So corporate data, personal data, all that data is going to flow into a centralized location. And they're actually going to give the EU citizens a data dividend. So as an EU citizen, you can go in and say, I don't want airlines to have any access to my data, or I don't want anyone in the meat industry to have anything of my data, or I really care about retailers and I want them to have access to my data. And you know, we're, we're going to go into the next era where data is going to be a monetized asset. And we, as individuals, it'll take a while, but we as individuals will have control of our data. I've always been a big believer in that Facebook and Google should actually pay to use our data. Now, other people don't agree with me and, and they really don't like what I say when I say these things. You know, I say, well, you know, Google's given us all sorts of great things like search and Gmail and it's all free and you're just giving up your data for that. Well, I don't think that's a good deal to tell you the truth. I think we should have you know, the, the, we should have the, the right to get the money for our data, for the use of our data. And, and those companies like Facebook should have to pay for the raw materials that they use. So it's a little bit of a rant, but I'll leave it at that. No, no it's interesting as well. I know there's, there's some stuff with data privacy going on in, in California recently this year, California Consumer Protection Act. Do you think there's, there's going to be the same direction in the US as there is in the EU at the moment? Yes, I do. Uh, GDPR was, there was a lot of, you know, hand waving and people concerned and upset about that in the United States. Like, oh, we'll never get another piece of data out of Europe. That'll be horrible. It's not like that at all. I mean, people are actually getting their privacy protected. Data is flowing. Data is being used. It's a whole other industry. And I think that the, the data commons and the, the work that's going on there will change how all of us think about data. I think that's a whole nother growth industry that's going to happen. Now, I think the people at Google and Facebook and, you know, Amazon and some other places are not going to like this. Uh, it's not going to be great for them, but that's okay. You know, they're big enough. They're, you know, they have billions of billions of dollars slashing around and they'll have to just figure out how to deal with it. So I'm not shedding any tears for those, those corporations. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. And uh, another thing you, you mentioned as well previously was, uh, companies putting AI systems into production and, and making changes based on, on these models and applications. Do you, are you actually seeing evidence of that? Yes. Yeah, I am. Uh, you know, if you look at McKinsey's most recent research, they show that the leaders are actually doing great things with AI in production. And you see, uh, you know, again, talking about growth industries, you know, the whole software industry around model operations and model management uh, is, is growing around that. You know, it used to be, you know, you put in a few models, you'd watch them, you'd change them in and out, but you couldn't, you can't do that if you have hundreds of, or if not thousands of models running across your organization, it needs to be an automated infrastructure. So we're seeing more and more of that and we're seeing software growing up to facilitate that. And I think it's going to be a, a big deal. There's a fair amount of conversation about models at the edge, you know, around internet of things and ind industrial internet of things. So yeah, I think we're going to see more and more of that. And 
a big question that we didn't touch on last time for obvious reasons. How has COVID-19 affected your role and organization? Well, it's huge. You know, it's a, it's a global pandemic. It's out of control here in the United States. Obviously, our, our soon-to-be former president didn't do a very good job with that. And I think that's part of the reason he'll be soon-to-be former. Uh, but, you know, we, we have been affected. All of us have been affected as individuals. Some people in a really horrible way. And my heart goes out to each and every family that's been affected in, in a negative way by COVID. Uh, CSL? As we said earlier, uh, all our therapies come from human plasma. You know, we refine human plasma into protein-based therapies. So anything that causes, uh, you know, the population to be concerned about leaving their house uh, is going to affect how we operate. So we, I mentioned earlier, we, we built that forecasting application and we put it in in February uh, and it was doing quite well, very well, as a matter of fact. And then when March came around, the forecasts were, you know, not as great, <laughs> to put it mildly, you know, because the world had changed. And we had to work really hard over the next month or two to get that model back in shape to be able to predict the new world that we were in. So COVID has, has changed uh, how we as individuals act and has certainly changed uh, the CSL business. But, you know, we've made, you know, all the changes we need to make and I continue to make those changes so we can continue to operate and, and deliver for our patients and the people that rely on us. Fantastic stuff. What's your top working from home tip? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I think this is really different for some people. And uh, I've been working from home for 25 years. So um, one of the things that I learned early on, and if this is new to you, this is really something that can, can be helpful. Um, we don't really think about it too much, but if you, if you work in an office, you have a lot of time to change from your work persona to your personal persona. You know, you ride the train or you ride your bike or you drive your car or whatever it is. And it could be five minutes, could be 10 minutes, could be two hours. Lots of people have different commutes, but most people don't think that they move from business mode to personal mode when they're doing that. Now, if you're at home and you're working at your home office, like I am, your commute is eight steps. So, you know, when you walk out the door and you go downstairs, like I do, to see my wife and soon both of our children will be home for the holidays, you have eight steps to transition from being focused on making something happen and, and possibly really tense to, hi, honey, what are we, what are we going to do this afternoon? You know, it's, it's you need to actively work on moving from one to the other, or what's even better is just integrate those two parts of your personality together. Um, you know, people do have different faces they present at work and then what they present at home. And what I've worked on over the last 27, 30, well, 26 years since I've been married to my wife is that I'm me, you know, I'm, I'm me at work and I'm me at home. So I don't really change much. Uh, and if you can integrate that together, it, it makes your life a lot easier. With that in mind, what does your morning routine look like? <laughs> that's a great question. I, uh, I'm different, that's for sure. Uh, you know, when I'm writing a book, I'll be at my desk somewhere between 3.30 and 4 in the morning. And, uh, you know, I just get up and I'm going. I don't drink coffee. I don't use caffeine in any sort or sense of the manner. 
Uh, I do drink a little bit of Mountain Dew, which has some caffeine in it, but it's each can is a third of a cup of coffee. So I don't drink a lot of caffeine. Um, generally, what I do is, is, and this is an interesting, I think it's interesting, is when I was writing, you know, the, the latest book, uh, the last thing I would think about before I went to sleep was what I wanted to write the next day. So as I slept, my subconscious was grinding away on what I wanted to write. So often when I woke up, and I don't use an alarm, I just woke up when I woke up, and I would come to the keyboard, and I would start, let's say, at 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning. So when the workday comes around at 7.30 or 8 o'clock, I generally had written, you know, 15, 20 pages because I had written it while I was sleeping. So it's really kind of odd, but that's the way it worked. So my morning routine is wake up, go to the office, and start working. Commendations to you because I can imagine 4 a.m. in January in Chicago is uh, it's going to be a pretty brutal time to wake up. I'm, I'm not sure a lot of people could do that. Well, I don't leave. I don't have to leave the house. You know, I walk out of my bedroom and walk up two flights of stairs, and I'm I'm in my work office. So you know, it's uh, it's not like I'm going outside. If it were going outside, different matter. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. What are you curious about right now? You know, I'm really intrigued by uh, some of the research I've seen, some of the raw research, pure research around taking Bayesian uh, theory and Bayesian mathematics and marrying that with neural nets. So it's, it's, they're calling it probabilistic programming approaches and programming languages. So where a neural network has a Bayesian uh, foundation in every node, so using probability as you're running you know, data through a neural network rather than just hyperparameters where you have a score. So really, really interesting stuff. I, I'm not sure it seems like it will work. I'm not really sure if it will. That's one thing that's really intriguing me and I'm reading every research paper I can get my hands on. Uh, another is explainable AI. Some really cool stuff going on in explainable AI right now where I don't want to give away, you know, any confidential information, of course, but uh, some people are running some very large algorithmic approaches and then taking other algorithmic approaches and overlaying those algorithmic approaches on the intermediate data from the previous algorithms. So you get some really intriguing math on math, uh, data on data kind of uh, things that are going on. So it's very probable in the next few years and maybe in the next 18 months that we will have neural network type accuracy with uh, decision tree type explainability, which is amazing, you know, because in, in, you know, in the UK, the US, Europe, all around the world, basically, you know, we have regulated industry, pharmaceuticals, financials, energy, media, you know, and all, not all those industries, but at least pharmaceuticals and, and financial, industry, financial services can't use the most accurate algorithms because they can't be explained. You know, we just don't know why a neural net does what it does. You know, and if we can get that kind of accuracy with a level of explainability that the regulators can, uh, can accept and will accept, we're going to see an incredible explosion of efficiency and effectiveness and, and just raising the bar uh, on a wide range of industries. So those two areas are, are keeping me uh, intrigued and interested. 
Yeah, very exciting times indeed. Finally, then, what advice would you give for aspiring leaders in analytics? That's that's a great question. Um, I always tell people, you know, that of course hiring is is the number one thing. You know, if you're building a team, you got to hire the right people. And who are the right people to hire? Of course, that's always the question. Um, we always tend to skew younger. You know, I, I like to bring in interns from undergraduate and graduate school and have them cycle through our team two or three times before we decide we're going to bring someone on full time. So we love a very long interview process. Uh, you know, when we hire uh, experienced hires, we have very long interview cycles. We run them through lots and lots of uh, different exercises and, you know, you know, group interviews, individual interviews, behavioral interviews, you know, all sorts of traditional interviews as well. So hiring is your number one concern if you're building a team. So spend the time on it. You know, I know that early in my career, I, I rushed the hiring process more than I should have. And, and don't do that. Um, and also, if you're going to hire, you know, people on your team and you feel they're the right people, make sure that they are curious. We talked about that earlier in the podcast. Make sure that they're incredibly smart, which you can find good, curious, smart people. And make sure that they have a high degree of ethics and integrity. Those three characteristics will, you know, you can teach people all the other stuff they need to know. Uh, but that's, that's generally, if I were talking to an emerging leader or, you know, someone who's going to be a leader in advanced analytics and say, focus on hiring first. Great advice from John Thompson, Global Head of Advanced Analytics and AI at CSL Bering, also best-selling author of Analytics, How to Win with Intelligence and Building Analytics Teams. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Hope to do it again.